I rely so much on my personality and so much on spontaneity and, you know, and it served me, but then it could be the thing that I think, well, I'll just try my personality again in a different way. I'll just try, you know, I'll just take another bold action. I'll just pursue. And so the amount of energy and time that I spent going after particular things that really didn't actually serve the bigger picture, you know, because I hadn't done accurate thinking, I've spent a lot of time doing fun things, you know, but didn't necessarily actually get me anywhere. Helping people build ambitious and satisfying careers, businesses, and lives. This is the Influence Ecology Podcast. Now, here is your host, John Patterson. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm your host, John Patterson, the co-founder and CEO of Influence Ecology the leading business education in transactional competence. We teach you how to transact for more of what you want. Broadcasting from Ventura, California, this podcast features case studies, stories, and lessons from business owners, executives, and entrepreneurs who found real solutions, real results, and real satisfaction, not only with work, career, and money, but in every area of life. You'll hear how these ambitious professionals found that those who transact powerfully thrive. Kristen Muller is a literary agent, author, and speaker who lives in the mountains of Colorado. Her career includes an acquisitions editor at Morgan James Publishing and executive publisher for Persona Publishing. She is now an agent at Waterside Productions, the literary home of Eckhart Tolle, Neil Donald Walsh, Jean Houston, and other luminaries. She has authored three nonfiction books, two of which include a foreword by legendary Chicken Soup for the Soul author Jack Canfield. A three-time TEDx speaker, Kristen has appeared on NPR, ABC, NBC, Fox News, and been featured in publications such as the New York Times and the Huffington Post. She even had a brief stint on TLC Network's Tiny House Nation. After losing her dream home and all her worldly possessions in a devastating wildfire in 2012. Today's episode is on the subject of accurate thinking versus magical thinking. Kirsten shares her views about the bankruptcy of magical thinking and how quickly life can turn around when just a little accurate thinking is brought to objective situations like money and business. For those unfamiliar, magical thinking is a term often used in anthropology or psychology. It denotes the belief that one's thoughts by themselves can bring about effects in the world, or that perhaps thinking something corresponds with doing that something. If you study the evolution of modern Western thought, Magical thinking appears to have been born of modern mysticism, pseudoscience, and psychological studies which claim that confident belief in one's vision or oneself produces real-world effects. The occasional coincidence of belief and effect further confounds the error. In the 2006 self-help book by Rhonda Byrne, The Secret, based on an earlier film of the same name, extolling the law of attraction, claimed that thoughts can change the world directly, that people and their thoughts are made both from pure energy and that through the process of like energy attracting like energy, a person can improve their own health, wealth, and personal relationship. The book has sold 30 million copies worldwide and has been translated into 50 languages. In this episode, we'll hear more about Kristen's own lessons on the subject and finish out the episode with a small bit of our primer on the transactional approach. Here's the interview. Kristen Muller, welcome to the Influence Ecology podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Take a second and introduce yourself, if you would. Hey, I'm Kristen Muller, and I am a literary agent, a published author, a three-time TEDx speaker, a pit bull mama, (laughs) rescue dog lover, and a mountain girl. I live in a little town called Salida, Colorado, three hours southwest of 
Denver in the mountains with my husband as well. That's fantastic. And you first participated in Influence Ecology when? Let's see. I think, you know, I watched my husband begin first. My husband, David, started in, I really think that was 2012, kind of maybe fall of 2012. And so I watched his progress. We had been to introduction, an open training session in Denver. And I was, my interest was piqued, but I kind of thought, you, you go, let me see what happens. You go first. (laughs) (laughs) And then went to the annual conference in Ojai. I guess that would have been, yeah, the January of 14 and something was, was shifting then. So about, about a year after he started. So I think fall of 14 is when I started. Very good. And just what's your, what would you say your primary lesson has been studying here? What's the biggest takeaway you've gotten from studying here? The combination of accurate thinking and really seeing my, my naivete and my magical thinking is a little bit too, a little, I don't quite want to say I was that far out there, but I was definitely, and I, I swim in the world of personal growth and so the world of some woo-woo, I would say I had hopeful thinking. Mm. So moving from hopeful thinking to accurate thinking and, you know, <laughs> thinking about this interview and I was thinking it's kind of my theme might be growing up is hard to do. <laughs> That's really but necessary when you're 52 years old. Absolutely. Well, I one of the reasons that I was looking forward to this conversation was because of that. I know a great number of people who have been weaned on the the nuggets of magical wisdom. I'll, I'll say it that way. I don't know how else to say it. And there's a lot of great things out there. There's a lot of amazing things out there. There's a lot of spiritual things out there. There's a lot of profoundly moving things out there. There's some, all of that. And I've participated in some of those things myself and have been moved to tears over, you know, I would say some awfully magical, wonderful, life-inspiring things. And I think what you're pointing to is why I was excited, because there's nothing wrong with all of that, but certainly in terms of making sure that life turns out for you, I think what you're saying is is that ultimately it may not have been good strategy. We could say that. I was just thinking, (laughs) as a long-term strategy for most of us, not effective as a long-term strategy. As a short-term bursts of enthusiasm, I took a lot of really a bold action and did amazing, amazing things, but all of it just kind of burned, (laughs) burned out and burned away. So there wasn't really anything lasting that I could say, this, this is, this is what I've created. Yeah. And I think that's the the great thing. Did you find that you know, the long-term strategy that you did have was more about something quite spiritual or, or something perhaps in tune with, you know, the universe and all its cosmic order and, well, and you know, good I, I things happen yeah. to good people. Or, I mean, how, how would you say it, it was for you? I've got my own version of it, but how would mm-hmm. you say it? You know, I wasn't completely in the camp of the universe will provide. However, I was that those words might not have come out of my mouth, but I was, that was still the, the water I was swimming in the air I was breathing. But I think my skeptic mind, I think it was more trying to relax into that the universe would provide as a strategy, but not Uh believing it, but working with trying to believe it versus thinking, Oh, maybe there's something (laughs) something else that might be more effective. Yeah. Something that actually has has legs and has something I can count on and return to. It's really good. Well, I think, like I said, we, you and I have the opportunity to make available a lesson, if you will, a case study. Again, I am not committed that we sit here and dismiss magical thinking. You know, I myself, my spouse says, you have amazing karma. And we we spell it C-A-R, uh, karma, <laughs> because I always get a parking space up front. So I enjoy <laughs> the notion of having good karma and that I always get a good parking space. Do I sincerely believe that it has something to do with my will over the universe to go my way? I don't. 
<laughs> is it fun to think so? Yeah, it is. Do I think I have the same karma around money? I, I don't. I certainly don't. I think I used to. And <laughs> so when, you know, a decade or so ago, when, when we began this work, Kirkland had said this one thing that I thought was very powerful, which is all that stuff's great. It's not good strategy. It's a exactly. little bit like winning the lottery. Everybody, you know, has the opportunity to win the lottery. Don't bet your future on it. Yeah. So how do yeah. you respond? I love that. I love that. I mean, it's not good strategy. I love everything you said. And I think for me, it was, it's hopeful thinking is really where I rested. You know, if I'm, if I'm good, if I've done all the right things, if I have, because I had a different kind of foundation. I had, I have a master's in counseling. I've done a ton of personal growth work. I'm in the personal growth field. You know, I kind of had done my time. I have the degree, you know, I have the right connections. And so all of these elements coming together, I had hopeful thinking that it would then, then is when I guess the universe would step in or something that, that it would be the tipping point. It would just happen. And so, yeah, it's not a good strategy. And now it's funny because I can, maybe I could hear it. No, I probably couldn't have. I was going to say, you know, I can spot it now in other people. You know, I can really hear the naivete in other people. And then the tricky thing is, I think in my industry is that it appears, quote unquote, to work for some people because they seem to be, that's what's coming out of their mouth, vision boards. And if you think it, if you believe it, it will happen. And, you know, law of attraction, all of that kind of stuff is what comes out of their mouths. And then a lot of them seem to be successful. So there is this kind of illusion that gets created that that's, that's truth. And then all these followers are trying to do what they're doing and not having success and, you know, and kind of wondering what's wrong with them. And I think that's actually part of what happened to me is like, what's wrong with me? Why I am thinking positively. I, I have not, maybe not the best vision board, but I have some, you know, what, (laughs) why is it not happening? I have, you know, this, this winning personality and I've made all these great contacts and connections and I make a difference and I genuinely care and, you know, and I'm helpful and I put people together and I'm a connector and like, why is it not actually then just happening? And so a pretty major crash of disillusionment and despair happened after all of that, of just thinking I gave it my all. I don't know what else I can give because I gave it my complete all. And so, you know, it was very, very upsetting. And then, and then being upset in that world of law of attraction, okay, if I'm upset, then I'm just going to attract more upset. So then I was in this catch <laughs> 22. Oh, so no. I was really kind of, I know, it was like exit stage left. Is, yeah, I felt like maybe I should just go and get a J-O-B, you know, and just, just forget all my dreams and goals and aspirations, just really throw in the towel and give it all up. Yeah. I appreciate that you are transparent about the kind of despair. It is our experience that oftentimes when people work for quite a while in what I think you termed, you know, the manifestation of something or the attraction of something, uh, whatever the magical thinking might be, whatever the hope might be, when the hope runs out and you've tried all the things you know to do, when the magical thinking, the manifestation, and those things don't pay out, and you have no alternatives, then it makes you not only question your your actions, but it also makes you question some other things. What did you begin to question about yourself or, or life at that time that threw you into despair? Well, I think, you know, I just want to add a little piece to that because I think it's more than just, just, you know, for people listening, because you may think, well, I don't just do, I mean, I do more than just sit and create vision boards. I'm actually out there doing things, which is action, you know, so that, cause I was doing a lot of action. I mean, tons of action. I mean, just so many things and speaking and radio interviews and had my own radio show and writing books and doing all these amazing things. So there was a lot of action and coupled with the hopeful 
the hoping that all of these factors, that there would be some kind of conversion of all this effort. And then it would, you know, it would turn into my dream. I mean, it was, it was, it was doing everything I was taught at that point, everything I knew to do to try to create this dream. And so it was not just, you know, the despair wasn't just, you know, being, it was like, I don't, I didn't actually know what else I could do because I was doing, I was yes. taking actions. I was hopeful and doing all the internal aligning with, I was, you know, ready for that level of life. I was ready for my book to be a huge success. I was ready to be the next Elizabeth Gilbert. You know, I was uh-huh. ready to be on Oprah's couch. And I had people saying to me, oh, I see it. I mean, Kristen, I see it. You're going to be on Oprah's couch. And I was like, oh, I, I'm going to be on Oprah's couch. You know, really, it's going to happen. And so it, with all the actions and all the degrees and all the prep and then all the hoping to have it not actually happen, a despair might even be too small a word. You know, it was, it was, it was devastation, really, that I didn't completely want to admit because it was so crushing to that little hopeful part of myself of just this, you know, kind of this child like hope, because then without hope, you know, what do you do? If there's no hope, then what's the point? And so it was this kind of, I really don't know what to do. It was a bankruptcy, kind of an emotional, psychological, spiritual bankruptcy, fortunately not a financial bankruptcy, but that, you know, could have been coming down the pike. It was just really a deeply, you know, impacted, impacted my confidence, impacted my, because I thought, oh, bold act. I mean, I even wrote, I told people how to do take bold action, you know, like take bold action, you get results. And so, you know, it's like, I stopped wanting to take any bold action. I wanted to just really kind of hide from the world and Mm -hmm. retreat completely and not say, screw you world. I don't want to put myself out there. You know, really, it was a big screw you world. I don't want, I don't want to do this. It's no, this, this sucks. Yes. I want to take a moment and also draw some correlations because you don't, you know, what you described isn't too dissimilar from people we see following any kind of popular idea about how to succeed. So let's just say that you listen to all the people who say, well, you need to build your, your leads pipeline and automate your leads pipeline. And it's all a numbers game. So all you need to do is increase your number of leads from one a week to 50 a day, and then it'll turn out. And then go people go do all of that. And we watch them have the same kind of, well, wait a second, all the experts said and all the things, and I did all the D and I took the classes and I signed up and I, you know, so forth. And they have the same kind of bankruptcy. Or perhaps they, you know, there I could go on with different popular things. You could say the same thing about a diet. You know, there's all the different, popular go do this thing you go do those things it doesn't turn out for you so then it throws you into kind of a bankruptcy and i think we can include those people because there's something i feel that people begin to discover when they start thinking accurately (laughs) right so first of all before we go to accurate thinking anything that you'd like to say about that general thought of all of the ways that people tend to follow you know, some particular strategy and find it might be bankrupt for them? Yeah. I mean, I, I actually can relate to as, as well, because I did then do some training to help me kind of start to build that that funnel and that all of that. And I still ended up in just exhaustion and this, kind of the same place. So it was part of, so I, yeah, I think that all of these things that we do that don't quite, that aren't quite getting it, you know, that aren't quite, it's that, I mean, band-aids is too, it's, that's too, I don't mean to trivialize it because like, it's like you said earlier, you know, it all really serves a purpose. I wouldn't be who I am today without having done all the various things I'm doing. (laughs) I have done. So I, I pay homage and tribute to all of that. And it wasn't getting the job done. Good. And, and it's worth acknowledging also the, you know, your, you and other people, you know, the ambition, the drive, the determination, the, the kind of unstop, 
you know, you're not stopping, you know, in the face of all kinds of stuff. You just like determined you're going to, you know, go for it and make that thing turn out and all of that. So, so there's all of that to acknowledge as well. None of us would be where we are without all those lessons. None of us would be where we are without having, you know, developed our own will and determination and all those kinds of things. Yet something's missing. And you have pointed to something that you're going to call accurate thinking. So what did you discover then? Well, I think first I discovered that I wasn't thinking accurately. So, (laughs) you know, it's just kind of this. I mean, obviously I've heard those words before, but it wasn't something, you know, kind of removing judgment and removing, again, not like we've just said, not making anything wrong that I've done before, but just looking at the kind of how it went, you know, the case study of how it went and, and all of that naivete and hopeful thinking and the hoping that all of those forces would just conjoin and become the thing that I really wanted. It wasn't, I never thought accurately about it. I never really took it apart and never did made a, you know, like we do in influence ecology, I have a manual now for my business where, you know, I'm looking at different, you know, everything I do is in a manual and it's mm-hmm. kind of making things have this, this structure that before I rely so much on my personality and so much on spontaneity and, you know, and it served me, but then it could be the thing that I think, well, I'll just try my personality again in a different way. I'll just try you know, I'll just take another bold action. I'll just pursue. And so the amount of energy and time that I spent going after particular things that really didn't actually serve the bigger picture, you know, because I hadn't done accurate thinking, I've spent a lot of time doing fun things, you know, but didn't necessarily actually get me anywhere. And if I took all those hours back and those days back and those years back and had put them into what I now know, then, you know, I wouldn't have spun my wheels so much and I would actually have something to show for it. You know, all those years of, you know, I mean, the radio interviews I did, they were great. You know, I got to know people and it was wonderful, but zero results, like no results, Mm -hmm. no nothing other than relationships. But, you know, as you know, some of us think that relationships equal results. And I really thought, I thought relationships equaled results. I have mm-hmm. all these amazing relationships, but it didn't have, it wasn't showing up as money in my bank and something consistent I could count on and something that I knew was going to continue to come in. It was just that uh, something that really felt good. And I was all about what feels good. You know, mm-hmm. I don't, I mean, I'm not afraid of hard work, but it's got to feel good. You know. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh my God. I think people are going to love this interview. There's, you're describing so many people and what they, what they truly think or go through. You're giving some, some great language to it. It's, it's very good. If you'd like to know more about Influence Ecology and our approach, you can register for free 30-day guest access. During this time, you can test drive our interactive webinars, online learning system, and private mentorship. Program participation is by application only, and successful participants earn candidacy into our advanced program tiers. Our members are an international assembly of ambitious professionals, business leaders, and executives from a variety of countries, industries, and cultures. To find out more, you can find a link in the show notes for this podcast at influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. That's influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. Or in the U.S. or Canada, you can text the word ambition to 805-262-9008 and we'll send the registration link right to your mobile phone. Again, text the word ambition to 805-262-9008. Also in our show notes, you'll find all the links to websites, books, or special downloads mentioned in this podcast. You did develop some really amazing relationships throughout this journey. I know one of the people that did the forward for one of your books is Jack Canfield. Yeah. And, you know, an amazing relationship, an amazing person to be connected with, especially if you're, you know, in the business of helping people as you are and, and the way that he has and, and does. And then you've befriended others in that camp. You want to say a little bit about what's happening now and what you're currently working on? 
Yeah, well, you know, it's it, to tie that back in, because Jack was such an early, he was a role model and a hero for me, as he is for so many people. But it was an area, too, where I had the hopeful thinking, because I thought if I just get to know Jack and have a connection with him, then something will happen. And, mm-hmm. you know, yes, he wrote my foreword and that, but then that was the next level. So then there's, okay, if Jack writes my foreword, then something will happen. Well, Jack wrote my foreword and that was amazing, you know, and for both books, he wrote my forewords and that's awesome. But that doesn't, again, it doesn't. <laughs> doesn't put money in the bank necessarily, no. not necessarily. No. There's still no. something missing. <laughs> there's still something missing. And so for me, I think it's really being, I mean, it's wonderful to have really highly connected people in our lives. It's a beautiful thing. But if it's, you know, it's really looking at accurately thinking and doing kind of an internal assessment of what's the, what's the motivation here? You know, is it, is it just feeding my ego? Is it just feeding my hope? Am I, you know, wanting to just be swept along with them? Or do I actually have something that I've thought about and considered and use accurate thinking to be an offer that I can present to them that will forward my aims, you know, because that's a different story than just kind of trying to ride along in their coattails. And, you know, and I don't mean to diminish, you know, even what I've done along the way, again, it was fun to share stages with people like that, but it didn't in the long run, it didn't serve, you know, and then you know, but lately, ever since doing influence ecology, participating in influence ecology, I have been able to be much more strategic in my alliances and strategic in my relationships and really looking at, is this a relationship where I'm just spinning the wheels and it just feels good to be in relationship with this person? And can I have, how much of my time can I afford to spend doing things like that? And some of it, as you know, you came to, I did a benefit concert, you know, for with Jack and with some other people, some really heavy hitters. And it was amazing. And did that actually forward my work? Not necessarily. So I was consciously choosing that that was kind of that went over here, you know, so it doesn't mean you can't just, you can't ever do things that are feel good, that are just kind of the heart based, heart centered aspirations. You know, I can do those, but before that's all I was doing. Now it's like, okay, now what is, so, cause I get, you know, I'm connected to all these people and I, I became a literary agent a little over a year ago, which kind of took my career identity to the next level as I've been in the book world ever since 2008 and started working behind the scenes and building my relationships there. But becoming a literary agent was a strategic move really done with thinking accurately, done with looking at no, I had the idea and kind of had the dream before, but it wasn't, I, I realized it was more that it was going to be more of that bold action kind of place. And so I really, I sat with it and I kept thinking about it and I kept doing the work and I kept doing the assessment and I kept, you know, asking trusted advisors for feedback. And so when I chose to take that, that action, it was, I had thought about it for a while. And so now I'm a literary agent, but as a new agent, I was getting referrals from some of these heavy hitters. And of course, because they're these heavy hitters, I'm like, of course, I'll take on your your friend and your referral and they're huge and they've got this big name and it's amazing. But what I found is I wasn't doing accurate thinking in those early relationships. And so I took on some people that now a year later is much savvier this far down the path. I wouldn't take on because they weren't, they weren't ready, you know, and just it's that old tendency to want to be liked and want to be pleasing and be, you know, and be part of it all and then say yes. And then like certain things about people and then say yes. And then turns out some, some have proven to be high cost transactions as we learn about, you know, and that's something I also could never spot before is when, what is, how much is this relationship going to cost me? And is it, you know, is it, am I really going to get the, the gain that I need for the amount of time I'm spending? Absolutely. There's a lot of different ways that we could point to accurate thinking, and many people share similar kinds of journeys. One of them is if I'm going to think accurately about satisfying my aims, and they could be your aims for money, but they also could be your aims for spirituality and everything in between. So if I'm going to satisfy all of those aims, I have to think accurately about them. In other words, how much money would satisfy me 
or what kind of work am I willing to do or not, and so forth. There's another part of accurate thinking, I think, that many people discover here, and that is when they start to understand what a transaction looks like, they start to see the parts that they're good at and then the parts they're not good at. Or you could even say the parts they dismiss altogether, uh, <laughs> as in making invitations and offers and requests and making those offers on a regular basis so that their financial needs are met and so forth. Is there anything that you want to say about the kind of accurate thinking that you brought to making invitations, offers, and requests yourself? Yeah, I would, I would say that I wasn't good at making offers that felt risky, <laughs> you know, that felt where I was, I could offer something to someone, kind of offer, as long as I felt like I was benefiting someone, you know, interview them on a radio show, I could offer, you know, kind of, and I maybe was thinking along the lines of reciprocity, but I don't, I don't think I actually was thinking too much along those lines. So I would, you know, offer something that would benefit someone else, but I wasn't good at asking for something that felt that I wasn't sure what they would get out of it. So I was too much out of my own realm into someone else's concerns. So um, too much of, thinking about them and not enough thinking about you. Yeah. One might call that codependency. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yes. And so then you discovered that and did you correct that or are you still at work on correcting that wherever you see I think it? I, I mean, we uh, could you know, I, I feel like, yeah. And I think that my story is really a work in progress. You know, I think that some of these tendencies are so hardwired, you know, to fall back on relying on my personality and relying on, you know, not asking the, not making the hard asks, you know, so I'm, I'm a work in progress, you know, but I think what I've gotten much more clear about is determining is really kind of doing the work ahead of time with a potential new client mm -hmm. of actually having the structures in place to determine what kind of client are they? What kind of customer is, will this be? Are they, will they be a high cost transaction? You know, and it's okay if people have some blips in the beginning, mm -hmm. you know, but really being able, training myself to watch for that rather than trying to, you know, continually beat my head against the wall with a customer who's just on their way out the door the whole time. And because I'm in the, the, the world of the artist, you know, the book writing world, there are, you know, it, 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 people come up against a lot of walls and barriers and fears and concerns when they're writing their book. And so it's so many people quit anyway. I mean, 80% of the population says they want to write a book, 2% actually will. And it's so easy to say, it's so hard to do. And so that's what I'm faced with anyway. So actually using assessment, kind of re, you know, reassessing my, my procedures and reinventing how I screen people going in and kind of the finding that fine line between not wanting to terrify people when I talk to them about accurate thinking, their own accurate thinking about what they're up against and, and also trying to, at the same time, keeping their dreams alive, you know, not killing their dreams, you know, but helping them to find that, that a little bit where they can stand in two worlds and be accurate in their own thinking and then keep their dream alive. But all the while I'm doing an assessment to try to see if they are, if they're cut out for it, if they've got enough of the elements in place, or at least they're willing to resource themselves. And then having those hard conversations with people when they're not, and actually saying to them, you're not ready, or I'm not the right person for you. And that's been a really, you know, that's, a, that's a, how do I say that? It's mature. I think it's, <laughs> yes. Thank you. <laughs> that's been a maturing <laughs> for me. It's been a deep maturing because, you know, so much of what I was like, I want to help everybody and I want to give everybody a chance and anybody can do this if you just break through your barriers and, you know, but instead of like, no, maybe you really shouldn't. And maybe you shouldn't right now, and maybe you really actually never should, and maybe that's okay. And but I'm going to tell you the straight story versus lead you along and try to give you hope because hope will kill you. Hope will suck the life out of you. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that we have said, we don't often say it publicly, but we we might say hope, offering hope 
without a practical pathway is unethical. Do you agree with that statement? Oh, I freaking agree, especially given that I just said hope will suck the life out of you. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> hashtag that. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, I think that's a whole that's other true. kind of conversation. We could we could launch a whole other interview on that topic alone. Well, yeah. I, want to, I want to switch gears just a, a bit. First of all, you and David have been married for how long? Or together for how long? David and I have been married since 1995, believe it or not. That's fantastic. Coming up on 25 years. Is that right? I can do the math. I can't do the math that quick, yeah. but I'll accept. And, yeah. And oh, so... Yeah. Yes, and can we say that influence ecology saved my marriage? Is that we're going to talk about that? Is what? Is that well, what I, I was going to ask you about how the, how it's impacted your relationship, <laughs> but I I do know you guys have been through some things, you know, because you you lost your home in the fire in what yeah. year? Twenty twelve. Twenty twelve. Your book about that subject is called what? The book about that is called Phoenix Rising: Stories of Remarkable Women Walking Through Fire. Excellent and. Fantastic book, it, you know, moving stories. And my question to you is, in your relationship with David, I now remember you saying, or, or maybe the two of you saying it saved your marriage, <laughs> or it may have done something. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about, why are you saying it saved your marriage? What happened? Well, I think in in some ways it saved my husband, which helped save my marriage. Mm. So I think... No, it had, yeah, so it's definitely 2012. So it was, you know, we had just had the fire. The fire was in March and sometime that summer, someone had invited us to go to the open training session in Denver. And like I said, we both, you know, we both saw that there was something there, but he, I was fried and I was, you know, I just honestly, I couldn't do one more thing. And so it was, and I was the one we were, well, I'll scratch that anyway. So he he started doing the participating with influence ecology and he had a he got called out by you or Kirkland, I don't know. And it was like, oh, it just makes me actually almost want to weep right now. Of it it was one of those things that it when it was happening, it didn't seem great. <laughs> you know, he was he got all kind of worked up about something. It was the talking about the annual conference and you know, how extraordinary the annual conference was going to be and the setting that it was going to be in and the people you might meet. And, you know, and he was just not, he was like, didn't, was not buying it and got all, my husband is an inventor and inventors think they're the smartest people in the room because most of the time they are, but they like to remind you of that. So they occasionally can appear, occur a little bit arrogant. (laughs) And, and there might not be any that you might not actually exist in a room if an inventor is in the room. And so David kind of got the inventor smackdown of, hey, dude, I got, I see you. I got your number. You ain't all that. And yet I can, you know, it was like, it was loving as well. You know, it was also yeah. very kind. And so it was really kind of just what the doctor ordered at a time where, honestly, that was a rough fricking fall. I mean, we had finally just settled into, we bought a house, decided not to rebuild. And this is after living in, you know, people's basements, living in a trailer, you know, fighting the state of Colorado because it was a state caused wildfire. And then we got audited by the IRS for just a random audit, but it was, we had no records, nothing to show them. And it was hell. We were going through hell. And my husband was at his limit, like absolutely at his limit. And so to have someone who really knew what they were talking about, kind of stand up for, stand up to him, but also stand up for him and be in his face of like, dude, you know, you got it all wrong right now. No matter how much you think you got it right, you got it wrong. And unless you deal with all that over there, you're going down. And like, he needed to hear that, you know, and it just was, it was humbling enough for him to step back. It was because it was true. And because it was spoken with authority and someone who really knew what they were saying, it was, it called him forward and it called forward the best of him. Mm. And, you know, fast forward, 
however many years later we are now, I mean, he is due to his training here at Influence Ecology, he was able to spot something coming in a company that he was doing contract work for. And he kept saying it with authority to someone he's known for a very long time who at first was not listening, but David was persistent. And he was saying, this company is going down and it is time for us to form that company, that business we've always talked about. Now is the time. And so here he is coming, you know, a year and a half into that. And it is, I mean, truly remarkable that it it is just completely altered his path and who he knows himself to be. And, and it's all, it's, it's not based on what we were talking about earlier of just like feel good stuff. It's, and David at that point, feel good stuff was not going to do the trick anymore. Like it needed to be something real and grounded and true and like, this shit's happening. Like he has created an international company that is with a three to five year retirement plan and it's, and it's real and he's working with a team. And so seeing this happening for him, you know, and it was just in seeing the sprinklings of him having mentorship in a way, having someone who he trusted and respected speak that clearly and directly to him started to alter his behavior and how he showed up and what he paid attention to and where he spent his time and how he studied and learned and became a, you know, just even just threw himself into his career. You know, the results are extraordinary. Hmm. How about them apples? (laughs) I love that for the two so much. Yeah. I do remember, I do remember, sitting on a, a little stool at a conference in front of David as he was talking about just having lost the house and the fire and, you know, just all of it. And to now see Kim as having completed our entire curriculum, going from the fundamentals program to the advanced program to our most elite program. And now on the other side of that, he's now an esteemable, uh, an esteemed alumni who's just, continuing to to do so so well i'm i'm quite proud of him and i'm quite quite proud of the relationship that the two of you share phenomenal i'm quite proud of him too and it just it it you know in partnership in long-term relationship you know you do walk through a lot of things a lot of life and we've walked through a whole lot and it feels like there's something i think because we're both entrepreneurs there's something about how important it feels for me to be able to trust what he's doing. So this has been, you know, he's been forging this path in doing this work with influence ecology and I've followed, but he's, I can go to him and say, you know, what about this? What do you think about this? And it's so grounded in something. Mm. And, you know, there's a confidence I have in his competence that is, you know, just really extraordinary and contributes to the relationship in ways that I wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought, you know, I wouldn't have expected. Well, with that, I think we've said our piece here. I actually looked up and we're, I, I was fascinated. We're now out of time. I uh, know I'm going to have to go for something else. So I'm so sorry. Any last parting words? I think for, for people like me that come from the healing, helping profession to know that, you know, it can be like, we get to still do that work. We get to still do the heaping, heaping, the helping, the helping healing profession part. (laughs) Yeah. We get to still have that be such an integral part, but in fact, we can be more effective if we ground ourselves in accurate thinking, because if we're just living in the world of hopeful thinking, it's, it's really doesn't, there's not the ground underneath us that we actually need to sustain and also to help our clients. And so I think I'm a much more effective coach and advocate. And well, I don't think, I know I'm a much more effective coach and advocate for my clients who are still so in that world that I can be a bridge into accurate thinking and, you know, introduce them to it in a gentle way that isn't, doesn't feel like, you know, again, the pain of growing up, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be so painful to grow up. You know, it can be when we ground it in something like this, it can be actually a really great journey. 
Kristen, it's been a pleasure having you on the Influence Ecology Podcast. Thank you so very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure being here. In 2009, Barbara Ehrenreich published Bright-Sided, how the relentless promotion of positive thinking has undermined America as a reaction to self-help books, such as The Secret, claiming that they promote political complacency and a failure to engage with reality. Since publication, Rhonda Bird's scientific claims in The Secret, in particular concerning quantum physics, have been rejected by a range of authors, including Christopher Chabris, and Daniel Simmons at the New York Times, and Harvard physicist Lisa Randall. Mary Carmichael and Ben Radford, writing for the Center for Inquiry, have also pointed out that the secret has no scientific foundation, stating that Burns' book represents a time-worn trick of mixing banal truisms with magical thinking and presenting it as some sort of hidden knowledge. In the 2010 book, The Watchman's Rattle, that author, Rebecca DeCosta, warns that time and time again, in the absence of a solution, pathway, or sound strategy, humankind will turn to belief, hope, and magical thinking. We would agree. In our work with people around the world, we observe that in the absence of a clear or pragmatic solution, hope and magical thinking takes many forms that undermine one's ability to produce real solutions and real results. We're not here to kill dreams. We're here to merely point out that magical thinking is not a sound strategy to meet your aims for such pragmatic things like dollars in your bank account. What is sound strategy? Great plans begin with an inventory of your resources and the fitness to deploy these resources towards some tactics that, when implemented, satisfy your aims. Here is a brief excerpt from our primer on the transactional approach written in 2014 by Influence Ecology co-founder Kirkland Tibbles. It is common to hear people talk about money and career as though they are some kind of subjective occurrence that will magically be taken care of if they just work hard, keep a good attitude, and not rock the boat. It is highly uncommon to hear people talk about money in any context except for how it is made. Few, those who know how to make it, relate to money as something that is objective and functional, a tool, not a mysterious happening. People who struggle with money, like those who struggle in other conditions, are most often blithely unaware of the condition at all. What most people do not know and therefore cannot use to their advantage is that these important and inescapable domains are only satisfied through transactions with other people. In fact, transactions are the fundamental function through which all adults satisfy any condition of life. Although commonly defined as the exchange of an asset for payment, to consider this term philosophically, broadens our understanding of the very nature of satisfying the fundamental conditions articulated here. Simply put, if we are to satisfy our most important conditions of life, we can only do so through transaction. Even the most complex of transactions involving millions of participants and spanning multiple years begins with and is constructed on the fundamental mechanics and practices of reciprocal exchange. Whether we are transacting for a burger or transacting to take a burger franchise public, the essential elements required to fulfill these transactions are the same. Those who employ the fundamental mechanics and practices required to produce satisfying occupations of work, valuable professional identities, and acceptable incomes understand the fundamentals of transaction. When adults learn and can competently apply these fundamentals, they are not only able to produce satisfying conditions for their work, money, and career, but are also able to satisfy many other conditions of life. Without the objective means to take care of them, all that is left is hoping, wishing, or good luck. Money is a consequence of transaction. Any other orientation or activity that attempts to dilute our thinking about what money is and how it is produced is simply flawed. Money is a consequence of reciprocal exchange. 
So this is the purpose of influence ecology, to teach people how to think accurately about the transactions built to satisfy their aims. We say, those who transact powerfully thrive. In our next episode, we interview Maura Clay, a health research consultant from Perth, Western Australia. But then through Influence Ecology, I actually took the time to work on my business to get help. And I think the the turnaround for me was getting help to recognise that I couldn't do it all myself. Much though I loved the concept of being superwoman, I was not superwoman and actually getting help was going to be the key. And when I got help, I suddenly became a lot more focused on what it is that I do. I was able to decline, I was able to say no to people and I had never said no to people because I was always scared that if I missed out on business, I was not going to be able to survive. Whereas now I am saying no, I am getting help, and my business is flourishing. My special thanks to our guest, Krista Muller. In our show notes, you'll find links to connect with her and all the links to websites, books, or downloads mentioned in this podcast. Some episodes include a transcript and support material. The Influence Ecology podcast is produced by Influence Ecology, LLC, in Ventura, California. This episode was recorded on May 29th, 2018, and was produced by me, John Patterson, and Tyson Crandall. This episode is made possible through the assistance of the Influence Ecology faculty, mentors, and students around the world. We're grateful for co-founder Kirkland Tibbles and his 30-plus years of specialized study in the philosophy of transactionalism and the fundamentals of transactional competence. This episode includes contributions by Carol Gregory and Tyson Crandall. The podcast theme is by Chris Standry, entitled Fast Train to Everywhere. You can subscribe to the Influence Ecology podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at influenceecology.com. If you haven't yet offered a rating or review, I ask that you take a moment to go to iTunes or your podcast app and let us know what you think. This helps us more than you know. <laughs>